Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Now this isn't quite the Season 3 premiere, but we're getting close. I've sent out some queries for the first batch of potential interviews, and already have two lined up, so it's on the horizon. Shooting for the end of September, maybe a little later, we'll see. But today, my guest is Dom Lewis. Dom and I talk about his score for the new film Bullet Train, starring Brad Pitt, which is a really quirky, fun action film. Dom and I also talk about some of his upcoming projects, including two Christmas films, one of which is a musical starring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, and he actually spends about ten minutes talking about his time working at Remote Control Productions about ten years ago, which, for those of you that don't know, is Hans Zimmer's recording and audio production company. And it's almost unreal the amount of big-name composers that have come through there. Hearing him list off the ones that were right down the hallway from him is kind of surreal. Dom's score is available for streaming on pretty much all platforms, and it might have a physical release, I actually haven't checked. But it is a really wild mix of some orchestral work, some rockier music, some electronics, some almost like 60s, 70s, Western film scoring too. It's all over the place, and that's what hooked me with wanting this interview in the first place, because I I heard the score before the film came out and had no clue how these pieces could fit together, and so I wanted to know more, and they do. But it's a really, really gonzo listening experience that I highly recommend checking out, and hearing his approach is very, very cool. And finally, before I forget, Dom does give one little spoiler in the film about 22 minutes in. You'll hear him mention a spoiler explicitly, asking if it's okay. When he says that, if you haven't seen the film, skip ahead 15 seconds. A little more is okay, a little less, and you run the risk of hearing it. But it's really quick, 15 seconds should save you. I know you're all eagerly anticipating season 3, it's coming soon. But until then, sit back and enjoy. Dom, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? I'm good. Yeah, you know, one day at a time. Busy, busy. Yeah, I mean, now that now that Bullet Train's done, I mean, I'm sure you wrapped your score up a little while ago. Are you taking a little break, or are you already on to the next project? Already on to multiple things, yeah. No rest for the wicked, but I prefer it that way. It's much better that way. Are any of those projects you can talk about, or is it still too early where they're all under wraps? No, all good. I mean, I'm doing... I'm doing two Christmas movies. One's already finished. One's a musical, a Pascal Paul musical, uh, starring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. It's a sort of retelling of A Christmas Carol, but with a twist. So that's really fun. And I'm just doing the score on that, obviously, because Pascal Paul are doing the songs. So pressure was off a little bit on that. I could just write <laughs> nice Christmas music in the background and not have too much, too much pressure. And then I'm also doing a movie called Violent Night, which is produced by uh, 87 North, which is David Leach and Kelly McCormick's mm production company and that starring Dave Harbour as Santa Claus and it's kind of a cool mix of Die Hard and Home Alone all kind of smushed into one so interesting that's super fun and then I'm doing a TV show as well so the TV show is called Kaleidoscope but I, I can't say much more than that it's a heist thing that's all I can all say right, cool so would you have actually been open to doing the lyrics if they asked you to yeah I'm down I'm down for anything you know I, I love writing songs I wrote a few songs on for Bullet Train and produced songs on Bullet Train as well so yeah I mean I'd, I'd actually love to do a musical I've sort of it took me kind of 
took me to my adult years to get into musicals. As a kid, I wasn't really into it. I always get annoyed when my grandma would want to take me to a musical. <laughs> but now I kind of definitely listen to them a lot more and I watch them a lot more. So I'd be up for it for sure. And I was the same way. I was never a huge musical fan. And then I watched uh, West Side Story, the Spielberg's oh. rendition. It's like, I okay, mean, yeah, this is when it, when they're done well, like absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's for me, that's sort of more of a, I mean, it's almost on opera classiness of, I mean, that that's just that nothing will ever beat West Side Story. Yeah. And, and you know, I know a lot of people were annoyed about redoing it when the original is already so good, but right. you can't have it in better hands. Who's Who's to say that Spielberg shouldn't make a project he wants to make? Right. He should make whatever he wants to make. And he does. <laughs> Oh, and, and I'm glad, you know, we're all better yeah. off for it. And obviously I haven't heard this music. I don't even know if it exists yet. But I I did want to ask, because I'm always curious when I hear like Christmas scores, what's the challenge or how do you get over the challenge of making something that sounds like Christmassy without it also sounding like the majority of other Christmas music that's been released previously? It's so hard. And I think it's a, that's such a good question because it's literally what I've been dealing with for the past six months. And, you know, you get the constant pressures of like, we really want the next Christmas classic. We want it to be like Home Alone. You're like, all right, well, no pressure. But I think, you know, you're sort of bound by the orchestra in a way. You can throw in little things to sort of offset that. You know, John Debney did a fantastic job with Elf with like using Mm -hmm. slightly different instrumentation and and sort of pushing it out of that just classical Polar Express Home Alone-y thing. But I think what it boils down to essentially is melody and the strength of the melody because... You know, like all classical music and all film, most film music before before the 80s, you had an orchestra and that was all you had. And you had to make that sound original. And more often than not, it was done with melody and, and memorable melodies. So that's what I've tried to do with these Christmas movies, whether I succeeded or not. I mean, I'm sure people will tell me, but <laughs> that was sort of how, I mean, that was the only way I could see to get that Christmas feeling and for it to be memorable. The only way to do that was with melody. I'm looking forward to them. My ears will be open. Okay, great. And I'm going to, I'm going to make the most labor transition possible but because you mentioned John Debney's score for Elf which I think is fantastic but it's also a score that for maybe the first two-thirds of the film is almost not even there because there are so many licensed tracks right and then he, he kind of has to you know work around them yes bullet train is similar in a lot of ways where there are a lot of overt licensed tracks throughout the film that you have to work around and then which what surprised me watching the film and then re-listening to your score that a lot of what i thought was licensed tracks was actually completely original right can you walk me through that process totally right from the beginning i mean i came on the project before a frame was even shot david and i sat down and staying alive was already part of the canvas holding out for a hero was already part of the canvas and i ended up producing staying alive which Mm. really it it gave me a really good sort of window into what i where i wanted to be and in that sort of 70s world and then to bring that 70s world up to date with score but my first thing to david and kelly was like you know what what's the perfect needle drop so often we have needle drops that work for 20 seconds and they don't work and then they work again. And it's it's a constant battle to get needle drops that fit the picture. So why don't we just get rid of that? And why don't I just write original stuff that sounds like needle drops, but it's actually got theme in it. It's telling story. It's doing everything you want from a needle drop. Yet you're tying everything together and it, it's custom made. And for want of a better pun, that was music to their ears. And it was gangbusters from the get go. So, yeah, I mean, that was the idea. And obviously you do have certain needle drops that I haven't done. There are some I produced, like the Engelbert Humperdinck, I'm Forever Blown Bubbles, Staying Alive. And then I wrote the uh, Kill Me Pretty for Tami Okuda. 
and I did a version of I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. So me being part of the songs in such a huge way made it easier to transition from song mm-hmm. to score. Also me being a vocalist as well, it was like, what's the biggest part of a song? The vocal line. So the vocals being a big part of the score as well really helped transition from score to song and back. So are those your vocals in the score songs? Yeah, 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 that's all me going crazy during the height of the pandemic, just the mad scientist in his lab, just grabbing instruments and singing and being crazy. You've done vocals on other projects that you've scored as well. And I think there's something more personal about having your voice out there versus, you know, you playing guitar or cello or something that appears out there. Does having having your voice appearing in film that tens of millions of people are going to see or have seen, like, ever kind of weigh on you or worry you or or at this point are you like no i'm i'm all for it i mean i'm all for it i'm an attention seeker at heart so i mean there was there, there was a point where i wanted to be a vocalist whether it was the front man mm. of a band or or that you know that's what i wanted to do as a kid i was my next door neighbor was a film composer tv composer and he would do commercials and he would get me to sing on them and i've been in that world a lot i was a boy chorister and so i'm very comfortable singing my mum is a singer so i've always wanted to do that it's my go-to show-off move if i need to show off i'd, I'd I start <laughs> singing for good or for bad i'm very comfortable singing and and having people listen to me sing so it was just sort of a good excuse to put that in the score and as i said it was a really good blending of song and score to have that vocal stuff go through and for it to feel like a song at times when it is score like you said when you're listening you thought it was a needle drop when actually it was score so it being pandemic i'm able to sing and to sort of manipulate my voice in different ways like at one minute i can be sort of choir boy-esque and the next minute i can be screaming Mm. like a 70s rock star i have fortunately have that ability to kind of mold my voice into different shapes and sizes so it was really useful just like being in the lab and just like grabbing the mic and going okay i'm going to do this now and then i'm going to do this now and oftentimes it's a scratch especially when i'm doing a song it's a scratch thinking that some other artist is going to come along and do it and i've been fortunate enough that a couple of times directors have liked my scratch and kept it that's what happened with lurch in the adams family too i did a favor for jessica weiss who produced that song for the movie and she said oh would you sing this we need a scratch you know we've got to get this done i was like yeah sure come over to the studio we'll do it so we did it sent it to conrad and he loved it and he wanted to keep it so i'm lurch in that movie so that was kind of cool (laughs) that's cool and i actually had jess on maybe last year for cinderella right she's great i love having her on oh she's great she's wonderful and don't worry i won't ask you to show off in front of everybody (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm fighting a bit of a cold right now so that's probably not a good idea oh that's that's a convenient excuse yeah I'll get back to Bullet Train, but you raised something that I wanted to jump on really quick, talking about when you were a younger kid growing up, your neighbor was a film composer. Mm -hmm. And I think for most people that I talk to that become film, TV, media composers, like they don't even know that that job exists for a long time. You know, they, they see a movie and they hear the music, but like they think that music already exists. And then they're 20 and realize oh no, this is someone's job, I want to do this. Yeah. So having that experience and that exposure earlier on, is that what opened your eyes to wanting to pursue this? Or did you just always want to do some type of music and this is where you ended up? It's sort of a combination of the two. I definitely, I always wanted to do music. I mean, as a three-year-old, I wanted to be like my dad and play the cello. And then I started singing and wanted to be in bands. And, you know, wanted to be a singer-songwriter, rock star. 
And then just the exposure to it, you know, having Paul Pritchard, who is my next door neighbor, who did a lot of TV stuff, he, as I said, would bring me over to do vocals and things. Who's also He was also really instrumental in helping me get into the Royal Academy of Music to study composition. Mm. He was amazing. He sort of took me under his wing, as well as having Rupert Gregson-Williams, who took me under his wing as well. So I had, I had a lot of exposure to the film world. When I was a teenager, my dad started doing sessions, like he started recording on big film scores. So there was that as well. So it was like the kind of, the stars were aligning for me to, to get into this world. And then from, you know, knowing Paul and me, meeting Rupert and that snowball get, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, you know, eventually I moved out here and met Hans and, you know, the, the story goes on. Right. But I think it's it's a combination of two. It's wanting to be in music and, and exposure to the film world. Very cool. Very interesting. We can jump back into some of that background and, and your journey into film music in a bit, but I'll take us back in a bullet train. Candidly, the score is, it's really weird. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, because you, you so rarely have things that are effectively like original songs or that are actually part of the score. Right. And so it's unconventional, and I think it's even more unconventional for like a big mainstream action film, which mm-hmm. is really cool, because I love when broader-focused things actually are pushing more and more, rather yeah. than like being set in something. Was there ever a pushback from David, as far as your approach and what you were doing, and the, the genre? you were jumping around in or was it very much like a you've got our trust go wild the second one and even more so i mean david couldn't have been i mean he's just a gem to work with it was just like nothing was off the table he encouraged me to go even bigger i keep saying this in interviews but he really did he the swing for the fences and if if it's too big i'll bring you back collaboration with dave was second to none he was so trusting and supportive and and gave me free reign and and wanted something different he wanted something wacky and gonzo and weird to match his gonzo movie from the start we were both like we want to create something that's really different it's 2022 we're not going to reinvent the wheel here but by combining elements that haven't been combined before we can come up with something that feels new and fresh and the last thing we wanted to do is come up with that same old action score that we've all heard and we've all seen so the green light was there to go do something different and being on before they even shot a frame gave me the time gave me the experimentation time to to really kind of go through every single idea and really figure out what's cool and what isn't and what's working and I'd get dailies every day and then, you know, things would change and there's so much stuff on the cutting room floor that we all loved, but it just ended up not fitting with the film. I mean, I just, I, yeah, I could gush all day about Dave and Kelly and how amazing they are to work with. And, you know, hopefully we get to do many more together, but uh, it was just a phenomenal experience to be given that trust and to feel, to feel like a filmmaker, you know, it, so often you're just the musician that do the notes and be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I really felt like a voice at the table. I really felt like I could come with ideas, whether it was musically or, or, or from a film perspective, giving my opinion on whatever. And it would be heard and, and it would be thought about. And that's really rare. Was that the first time that you'd been brought in that early into the process? I had a similar experience on Kingsman, The Kingsman with Matthew Margerson. Matt was actually stuck on Rocket Man. He was doing Rocket Man. So Matthew Vaughn wanted to bring in someone to kind of write sweets and get the ball rolling early. So he had me get together a mobile rig and I was literally next to the set so he could like walk in off set, <laughs> have a lesson and walk off. I think it happened probably in the four months of shooting. It happened maybe twice. At the beginning of it, it was really cool because I'd never been on set and, you know, my rig hadn't arrived yet. So I was just sort of there hanging out, watching them film. So it was beneficial from that 
aspect, but it wasn't quite as collaborative as, as mm. what happened with David. When you film anything, it's it's always a bit mental. And directors don't want to be thinking about music to the point yeah. of like giving notes and doing stuff. So that's why this process works so well, because I would just be creating stuff and sending him things. And at his leisure, he could be like, oh, I'll listen to this. And then oftentimes he'd be like, oh, I'm going to play this on set and like give the vibe and things. Whether it was the White Death Suite or whatever it was, he would sort of... I mean, it's just so cool. Like, I've, ne- I've never heard of that before. You know, a director getting a suite and then playing it on set to give his characters the, the vibe of what he wants. So, yeah, just a really cool process. Yeah, I, I love that because it's it does seem so much more collaborative than the film being more or less done and you come in for eight weeks at the end to... Uh put something together and then send it off and then you're out of the picture again. I mean, there's pros to that. There's pluses to that. But, you know, when you're really going for something that is going to change it up, that process doesn't really work. When you've only got eight weeks to come up with something groundbreaking, it's like, well, you know, not even the best albums in the world were made in that short time. So, And that's what this was, really. It was sort of a concept album from start to finish. Coming in that early, before anything was even shot... What was the the first thing that you did or, or how did you kind of get into the the mindset of what this music was going to be like and what did you start working on first? Well, I read this script. I read the script before I had the interview for the gig. And then a weird process of getting the gig to start with. I got the call saying that David and Kelly wanted to meet. So I sort of went into panic mode and was like, I've got to prepare, I've got to prepare. And so I started putting together like almost like a mood board or or, mm. or like a Pinterest of of like basically having read the script the possibilities of genres and the music and directions we could go in and then i had my first meeting i didn't unveil the mood board yet and i just sort of i teased the idea and we were just generally talking about tone and everything and it went really well and then they wanted to see the mood board so then the second meeting i kind of i went through all these tracks and and at no point was it going oh we should use this in the film or you know we should it was just it was more like Look at the possibilities. Isn't music amazing? We could do anything we want. Um, And they loved that. They really loved it. And by the end of that meeting, they were like, we want to work with you. We want to get you sorted, which I didn't quite believe for about a week until the kind of my agent called and said, you got it. And then from that point on, I met with David. And the first thing I actually did was write La Despedida, the Wolf Montage song. At one point, it was supposed to be like this sort of old traditional song. And then Dave had the idea of, you know, why don't you try something here? It should be, it should feel very bespoke to this moment. And, go for it. I don't know if it was a test or whatever, but I just like, I dived in head first and I created La Despedida and I did the scratch track and I don't speak Spanish. So I was like, I had help from friends with the lyrics and stuff and um, I couldn't get, they, they were adamant they wanted this like weathered, really kind of passionate voice. And my voice is kind of, well, it's quite high for one and it's quite <laughs> pure. You know, I reached for the tequila and um, you would just keep singing it and singing it and singing it. And then eventually I got this gruff voice, polished it up, sent it off. And they loved it. And we were we were off to the races from that point on. So then from then, I moved into the more kind of like film music stuff. Mm. And it was the fate material that I moved on to. And I was just experimenting. You know, we'd spoken about on the meeting, you know, what if we found a sample and we use that as, our, as the basis for the score and I would build everything around it. And obviously, I would have to come up with that sample. So that's what I was doing. I was coming up with the sample. The fate material is kind of like that 70s record that I found. And I just started building that and just sort of throwing stuff at the wall, see what would stick. And it turned into this seven minute long <laughs> diarrhea of ideas that I, that, I, that I sent him. And he was super into it. And we started putting that. There was no temp on this film. So we just started, mm. I started just temping with original stuff, which was, was just amazing. If I had the time on every film, I'd do it because you just like temp love is a real thing. 
So if the temp love is for something that I've created for the director, you're in a win-win. Actually, there were no instances. It was always like, we want this to evolve a bit more here and do that. So, mm. But the process was great. I mean, as I said, just like throwing ideas at the wall, sending to Dave, he'd give me thoughts. And more often than not, the thoughts were like, this is awesome, <laughs> which is great. And then there was a little moment where we started doing previews where the tone of the bad guys, the tone of the White Death and tone of Prince had to shift to a bit more of a fun on the dial it needed to be a bit more fun so with the white death i kept those scary elements but added sort of 12 string guitars and a more rock elements that more 70s influence came in there too and then with prince it was sort of really leaning into that sort of 90s comeback gen z sound but the cool thing about that is with prince i got to keep the old theme too because she's such a psycho she's got these two sides to her <laughs> but she's like super psycho and then very charming and sweet so you've got that like the two ideas and then fortunately for me they work together so that was kind of a cool finding that out that they would work was cool and i could keep both things so i mean i could go on and on and on about the I'll, process you know what, if, if you're gonna keep talking <laughs> i don't even i can go out and grab a drink and you just the minutia and the detail that went into every single character and you know just because i cared so much and i was so into the project and so into the collaboration that every little thing had to be perfect that's something that really stands out because the film structure is that you have a number of these like recurring main and side characters that are throughout the whole length. And then you'll have someone like the wolf who is basically in for a, I don't know, 10 minute section. Right. If that he shows yeah. up, you get the backstory and then like there's his scene. So how did you balance having those themes for characters running throughout the film, as well as having these kind of like one-off characters where you have to, define who they are musically without it sounding completely disparate from the rest of the film yeah i mean i think that's where the whole kind of concept album came into it because little little elements of things would sort of leak whether it was an instrumentation thing or a melodic thing they would leak into other characters the wolf is kind of there's a tiny little bit of the wolf that happens in the action stuff at the end where brad pulls out the knife and you get a mm. little bit of a, a memory of him but with all the other characters it I would leave little Easter eggs with Prince because are we doing spoilers? Sure, I'll, I'll just I'll <laughs> warn everyone. Well, the fact that she's um, she is the White Death's daughter, you know, I would leave little Easter eggs of just little bits of the White Death motif within her material, and then fate. That kind of fate material is sort of with everyone. That the, the high string stuff and the main theme comes in a couple of versions with Tangerine. It's sort of it's. Everything's just cross-pollinating throughout the whole thing without you really realizing because the genres are so different. You're not necessarily picking up that, oh, that's the fate thing, but Tamiyo Okuda singing it. Or that's the string line, but that's over Prince. Or that. So it's, I was constantly trying to weave that through so you didn't feel, although it's like, you know, flicking through a, a greatest hits album and every track's different, there is a through line that brings you to the end where you do get that more kind of cinematic... I mean, I hope it's not generic, but it definitely feels more film music-y when you're, you know, when the train's crashing and, you, and mm -hmm. towards the end when the orchestra's massive. And, you know, I went from recording at Capital B for the more character intimate stuff. And then as soon as we got to Real Six, I went to record in Sony with a huge orchestra. So you get that change of perspective. You get that, that big explosion of orchestra. So, yeah, it is all over the place. But I think the combination of melody and instrumentation and that that sample basically that 70 sample that gets sewn through everything helps it all connect well and, and you mentioned a lot of those things 
maybe not being noticeable on a, on a first listen mm-hmm. or a first watch, let's say. What do you want the audience to get from it? Talk about a bit of the wolf musicality coming in near the end when Brad Pitt has the knife. Is there an expectation that there will be an overt connection or is it just kind of working in the subconscious? I think working in the subconscious, I think there's an element that if people are noticing it when it goes by, I'm not really doing my job properly because mm. they should be watching. They should be like going along with the ride. But I think it's the subconscious. So when you get to the end of the ride, you're like, oh, that was crazy, but it kind of worked. And then obviously when you go back and listen to the soundtrack, you can kind of pick those things out. And yeah. that's, you know, that's why I left those Easter eggs there. But honestly, just like the most fun type of score to work on and just like throw all the rules out the window um, (laughs) and just like have fun with everything and just whatever genre took me that day I was like oh let's ride with that let's see if that works let's mix this genre with that genre or so yeah it's wacky but I think it's all tied together by that like finding the sample and putting it through everything yeah and and I think you watch the film you get to the end there's never a moment at least when I was watching, where I was like, this music is coming out of nowhere and I don't understand how it fits in at all. But again, like, I listened to the the score first and that's where I was like, whoa, I have no clue how this all fits together (laughs) because there's so many pieces across, I don't know, like 55 minutes. But it so caught my interest because I, I wanted to see how it actually worked. And it is gonzo and, like, weird and unconventional, but... Yeah, it it does work. Yeah, why not? You know, I would much rather people say it's weird and gonzo and, and that it works or that it's weird and gonzo and it doesn't work and they don't <laughs> like it. I mean, I, I'm at a point now where I'd much rather people have a strong reaction to my music rather than, eh, it's all right. That's not the worst thing <laughs> when yeah. someone says that. So, Well, like you said, it very much could have just been a straightforward action score that we're all used to. And it... Yeah it wouldn't have been bad. It would have functionally worked and you could have fit themes in. But in a sense, with how out there and quirky the movie is, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made sense at all to have something just like straight-laced and straightforward. Yeah, I think it would have been a mess. As you say, it would have worked fine because the performance is by all the actors and the direction is is amazing. So, you know, a more traditional way of doing that would have been fine but it was just such an opportunity to just go nuts and to just elevate these characters with music and to really have a feeling that music plays a big role in the film because I think for me personally we've lost that a little bit in the last 10 Mm -hmm. years I think towards the end of the 80s and and especially in the 90s soundtracks were massive you know they ever like you would run out to get the latest soundtrack because you'd heard it in a movie whether that's happened on this or not I don't know but that was certainly the goal to sort of bring that feeling back of watching a film and hearing a really cool song that you didn't know and go oh I want to go find that and whether that and and an extra cool I've had a couple of people contact me and going I really, I'm trying to find the song that happens when the train pulls into the station and I can't find it. And then someone else will go, oh, yeah, well, that's just actually the score by Dominic Lewis. You did go check it out. So, I mean, that was kind of the goal to straddle that line and for it to be kind of obscured between score and song. So that was really cool to see. That experience, does it ever feel a little surreal? Because I feel like if you're joining a rock band, for instance, or starting one, that's something where people are coming to listen to you or they're buying your CD mm-hmm. But obviously, if you're composing for film or TV, you're in very much a secondary role. Like, it isn't about you. You're there building something up and collaborating. Right. Does that interaction feel surreal where someone is coming 
out to you and being like, this is such a cool track. Like, I love this track. It's a very cool experience, especially for someone who was a kid wanted to be that guy who was, <laughs> you know, playing Wembley Stadium and, and in a rock band. And it's something that I think it should be more of a common occurrence with film composers because so many talented, amazing people write these amazing scores and, it, you know, they sort of just, they're doing their job and they get forgotten about. So there's, a, you know, a certain, certain colleagues of mine that, you know, do have that rock star status. But it's always nice. It's always nice to, to to be validated in that way where someone's gone, oh, that's a really awesome song. Oh, it's the composer. And then you then, then that kind of snowballs. And, and that's cool because it's oftentimes, as you say, we're just sort of behind the camera and out the yeah. way. And for the most part, I'm cool with that. But it's always nice to get a little pat on the back sometimes. I don't know if Hans has ever played Wembley, but like that's someone where he's doing like full on big yeah. ass concerts showing yeah. up in his guitar right in the front. Right. And I find it, I think it's cool, but it's also just like, I don't know. It feels, it feels so weird to see. I think it's awesome. And you know what? <laughs> if anyone was going to do rock concerts, it should be Hans. Because, I mean, the guy has literally not only changed film music umpteen times, but changed his own sound umpteen times with still being Hans. And it's quite an incredible achievement. It's one thing for people like... Tom Newman and John Williams and Alan Silvestri to have their sound with an orchestra or sound with, you know, with Tom Newman, it's like lots of different kinds of instruments and however they've come up with their sound. But for someone like Hans to like to start with the sort of Rain Man driving Miss Daisy stuff and then the Days of Thunder and then to mix it up into like full Wagnerian sort of gladiator rock, the rock stuff to then move it to. I mean, it's like every decade he reinvents himself. It's incredible. You know, much like a rock artist, much like a band that's that has, tr- you know, tried the test of time and have to sort of reinvent themselves in mean, ten years, and he's done that. And yeah, I still haven't been able to get to a show, but I would love to see. I've seen them all. <laughs> I, they look amazing online, but yeah, no, fair play to him. I'd be doing the same thing if I were him. Can't you get you know backstage passes or something? Having worked for RCP before, I mean maybe I'll have to I'll have to I have to hit him up. I haven't seen him for su- I mean with the pandemic and everything, I haven't seen him in such a long time. But um, I would love to go see a show because everyone just raves about it. Oh yeah, I mean every I'm I'm the same way. Everything that I've seen, I haven't seen it, but every clip that I see looks just like a true wild performance. Yeah, yeah. just like a, a, an experience. And what incredible music as well. I mean, like what better. Yeah. You get all the visuals, plus you get this incredible music that he's created over 30, for four, was it 40 years now? I don't even know, but a long so. time. Yeah. yeah. Talking about him reinventing yourself, himself, is that something that you're ever looking towards in the future of being like, ooh, I, I need to make sure that I'm keeping my, my sound fresh. Like, I don't want to be doing the same sort of music 10, 20, 30 years from now. Totally. I mean, I think there's always a constant. I think the orchestra will keep will always keep me constant. Trying to sound like Ravel or trying to sound like Debussy is always going to... I'm always going to have that side of me, which comes in handy when you're doing, like, Christmas movies and things that need yeah. to be with an orchestra. But for, for things like Bullet Train and, and, and other kind of cool shows and films, I do want to keep mixing it up. I mean, I have such an eclectic taste in music. I want to be able to sort of flex all those muscles and find those combinations that people haven't found yet break those rules that people haven't broken yet that's a huge Zimmer philosophy like he's all about breaking rules his whole sound is about breaking rules and it's important to me I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm just churning out the same thing 
and I think today, if you look at my IMDb, there's there's not many things that are that similar on there. It's all kind of a bit nuts. But that keeps me sane. The nuts nature of my IMDb page keeps me sane and keeps me thinking of fresh ideas and, and moving my sound forward. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you listen to Bullet Train and then go and listen to Peter Rabbit 2. Right. That's like... like <laughs> yeah, very different. Yeah, the, two totally different things. Yeah, and I want to keep doing that. I want to keep doing kids stuff. I want to keep doing grown-up stuff. Because I think if we do anything for too long, then it, it'll get stale. Whether you're yeah. eating the same lunch every day, you're going to get bored of it. So I want to keep doing different things, different types of animation, different types of kids stuff, different types of action. Different like th- I haven't done like real kind of thrillers mm. yet. I'd love to do that, like really get stuck into a psychological thriller. They tend to be like thriller action stuff that I've, that I've done so far, but... Yeah, there's so many possibilities, and it's so exciting to be, you know. Well, it's kind of cool, like, that, I mean, it's, I don't think it's arrogant, but I have the confidence that I think I can do any of that stuff. Um, I've had the training, and I've had the mentors to, to put me in a position to be able to do that. So it's exciting to sort of have new genres on the horizon that I haven't touched yet. Well, I think that's almost necessary in some ways for the field where... Unless you're a huge name and, like, you just kind of do the style that you want. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you take a lot of, like, uh, Reznor and Ross scores. Right. They've got their sound, but, like, they're superstars and, and, like, they can get away with doing that sound. Right. Like, a lot of people don't have that leeway. So you've got to either be able to dabble in everything mm-hmm. or at least have the confidence to be like, oh, yeah, I, I can definitely do that. And then scramble and, like, work your ass off to actually get that done yeah 100 percent. and you know what you're absolutely right i think that that sort of monopolization of sound comes when you're successful and people want that and and that's again another tip of the cap to zimmer is that you know he's he's had so many of those but yeah he's like well i'm gonna mix it up i'm gonna do something different so yeah i'm not that i'm not as successful as those guys so i don't know whether i'll be getting the calls to be like i need <laughs> to do that thing but if that does happen i will always try and mix it up They've had uh, quite a head start on you, so... <laughs> true, <the> time. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I brought it up tangentially with, with Peter Rabbit, too, but, you you know, you mentioned wanting to do more animation as well or continue to do that and things directed at kids, too. Do you think that people tend to underestimate or, like, underappreciate the music that comes out of something that's animated for kids? Oh, that's a really tricky question. I'm not sure... Sh- I'm not sure if it's a conscious thing. I think, I think you've got that. There's there's something in that because obviously it's it's not so readily available for adults, you know. And I think it takes something sort of really special for it to prick up the ears of an adult musically. But then again, you know, I think it kind of has to be in a musical world for that to happen. You look at the success of things like Frozen and Moana, and yes, they're huge with kids, but the adults love them too. Uh, they've certainly played in my house many, many, many times. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a tricky one. And I've done animated scores that I'm proud of that no one's ever heard uh, other than watching the thing. You know, it's not like you're going to watch a Monsters at Work episode and go listen to the score if you're, you know, 52. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe some people do. I don't know. But y- you've definitely got a point. But I, I, c- I couldn't put my finger on why. For for all of my colleagues and people that do this, you know, oftentimes some of that music is the most complex and the, and the most difficult to write. So it doesn't really seem fair that it's not getting the, as big a spotlight as the as the adult movies. But 
I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't have an answer for you. Really, <laughs> waffled, waffled I, nothingness there. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. I mean, in, in one sense, I I almost wonder for myself too, because and and I I do think it's true that it's a subconscious thing because sometimes I'll listen to like an animated four kids score mm. and be like, oh wow, that was actually really good, and then I I stop and I'm like. Wait, why am I saying like why do I feel surprised at that? Right. Like, why do I expect it to have any you know lesser music than anything else? Yeah, and as I was saying, oftentimes it's more complex. And you know, I w- I listen to a lot of animated stuff, and I'm 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 a bias. I'm I'm not one to be referenced here because I love it and I do it. So anytime I'm watching stuff with the kids and I hear really good music, mm-hmm. I always go check it out. I mean, a lot of that stuff is phenomenal. And yeah, as I said, I can't I can't really put my finger on why it doesn't get as much. PR as the other stuff, but there are certain things that do. Tends to be Pixar related, but there's so many shows that my kids watch and, you know, I'll be cooking or I'll be in, or just around the house and and the the mix will be good and I'll be like, that's really cool. There's like a few shows that they watch I'm like, wait a minute, that music's really great. So, yeah. Everyone's just doing their bit, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I keep waffling. I don't have an answer. I don't know, but it's it's still, it's, it's good insight. Uh, so I appreciate it. Even, even if there isn't a a concise, like, this is the reason why, which right. it's too abstract to have that type of answer anyways. Yeah, I mean, not to labor the point, but I think like, most adults, when you find something that is similar to what you would listen to in your car without your kids, if a film score is somewhat evoking that, they're more likely to put that on than they are the Incredibles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Unless they want to, you know, get to the, their kid's school on time. But... <laughs> If it's closer to what their music library would be, that's probably why the non-kid stuff gets more light than the other stuff. Mm. There you go. I found an answer eventually. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, Dom, before we wrap up, I did want to ask if you you could talk a little bit, even if it's just, you know, an an anecdote about your time working at Remote Control Productions. It's something that so many people are interested in. And it's obviously like, you know, with Hans at the top, but also the sheer amount of huge names that have come through like mm-hmm. it, it's just had such a big effect on modern film music tv music but yeah. we don't necessarily get a lot of peeks behind the curtain to like see right. what's going on sure i mean listen rcp is i always say it's the best university you could ever go to i mean i was i did four years at the royal academy of music and i learned more in a month at rcp than i did in four years um that's not quite true it just in terms of like not necessarily like music related things, just stuff that it was so important that, you know, me sitting here and I'll probably talk to a, a director later today or and I'll have a meeting or whatever. And just those skills that you just never get taught in college. You know, I left college and then within within six months, I was sitting in a room with Ramin Javadi, Jeff Sinelli, Mike Hyam. And, and then then a couple months later, it was John Powell, Hans, Jeff Sinelli, Lorne Balfe. Like, and it's just like you're just surrounded by all this talent. And, you know, you just sort of become a sponge as a kid. You just I was very lucky to sort of go straight into an additional music role. You know, I'd done my little stint with John before all this on How to Train Your Dragon, which was incredible. And John is a complete genius. And that whole experience was very daunting. And I spent most of it sort of flicking through Ravel going, oh, my God, this has got to be better. I've got to do this better. What would Ravel do? But remote control is just this like it's this competitive but supportive atmosphere. It's very difficult to describe because everyone's obviously trying to get to be in the chair and do their thing. But at the same time, everyone's very supportive. And we all know that we're all in it together. Mm. You know, you, you leave at 
I'd be there till God knows when in the in the wee small hours of the morning. But then everyone else would, you know, in those days. Like you'd go out to your car and then you'd spend another two hours talking to everyone else that was doing the same thing. And just like you'd walk out to the car park and you'd see Tom Holkenberg, Atlia Verison, Ramin Javadi, and like you've got all these like heavy hitters, and to a certain extent they were back then when I was there. And you're just sort of learning and, and absorbing and in the event that you do work on a hands movie and you're in those meetings, I mean, those are like, as a kid, or, well, as a as a sort of 20-year-old at college, I never would have dreamed of being in that, like, you know, his boudoir, that amazing room. That's daunting enough as it is. But then just listening to a master, like not only a master of, of music, but a master of film too. He's so knowledgeable. And the way he takes a meeting and the way he makes directors and execs feel comfortable and being exposed to that as a 24-year-old or whatever I was was just like gold. You just don't get that. No matter how good your teacher is at whatever mm-hmm. academy you're at, you're just never going to get the best in the business talking to a Gore Verbinski or, a, you know, whoever it might have been on any specific day. And then you throw a Powell into that and you throw a Jackman into that and you throw like all these people that are under the same roof. I think that's why everyone succeeds from there. Other than the the huge support from hands and so many people have been given uh, those breadcrumbs from, from him and he's just like such a nurturing, supportive guy to his, you know, if you put the work into him, he's going to give it back. But yeah, I mean, I've those names I've mentioned and there's way more. You know, when I, before I left, my corridor was, it was Matthew Margeson, then me, and Alan Myerson was over the corridor, then Hector Pereira, and Henry Jackman down the end. And there's one more I'm forgetting. I can't remember if I'm forgetting. But I mean, and that's just one building in RCB. So whenever you go out your room, it's like, oh, hey, and you start talking about stuff. What are you working on? And, you know, especially with someone like Matt, who I'm really close with, we would always, always go into each other's room and be like, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this. Hey, would you mind giving a listen to this? Mm. And, you know, and it's like, we obviously want to be doing it ourselves, but we're there. We support each other as well. And then obviously we ended up scoring the Kingsman together, which we'd always wanted to do a co-write together. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here talking to you if it wasn't for remote control. Like with any job, there, there are highs and lows. But I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, it was a very hard but special place to work in. It was invaluable. I would I literally wouldn't be sitting here if I hadn't gone there. That's great. And I appreciate the... <laughs> the, the reminiscing about it that's just yeah really cool i mean hear. you know it's it's it was tough to leave it was tough to leave because you do have that support system you know but i had was had my family was growing and i needed to i needed to sort of take care of business at home and stuff but um it's an amazing support system and and you can just kind of pull from so many different things and there's always someone at 2 a.m getting a coffee that you can kind of like have therapy with for a bit and then go back and you know write your cues <laughs> as i say I, I i think with covid maybe that's not quite Mm. the atmosphere now but uh definitely when i was there it was it was pretty cool actually it was it was it was a very one-off experience that not many people will have yeah on on that (laughs) perfect place to end it okay cool just i don't know it's awesome hearing about it and and once again dom i i appreciate you joining me to to talk about bullet train rcp your upcoming work everything my pleasure thanks for having me of course and uh i'm looking forward to those scores later this year Oh, yeah, they're fun. They're fun. They will... uh, Too much Christmas for me right now, but I've got to get through it. (laughs)